which we think is beneficial because it helps us create solutions for our customers that no one even thought was possible. And the only reason we think it's possible is because we come from this different background. So as time goes on, where first we're using other people's satellites, then we'll start to have our own cameras on other people's satellites. Our first one's going up next year. But in three to four years, we're hoping to have our own spacecraft and they'll be maneuverable spacecraft. Hello, space enthusiast. You're now listening to Space Forward Podcast. I am Hussein Bukhari, your host. With me are Matthias Frenzel and Benjamin Shapiro. In this episode, we are going to talk about Earth's first on-orbit satellite inspection service, the Australian HEO Robotics. We talk about how they pivoted from asteroid mining to space situational awareness, the methods they use to find product market fit, and the possibilities to scale their business to the moon and asteroids. EO Robotics improves their services by having many iterations every two hours to the goal of having a utilization rate of less than 60% versus the average 15%. And today, our guest, the incredible William Crow, founder and CEO of HEO Robotics. William has studied aerospace, aeronautical, and astronautical engineering, and holds a PhD in space flight dynamics. Well, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. It's been a while since we talked last, and uh, you know, it was it was almost almost a year ago, almost a year ago. Yeah. At that time, you know, you were you were doing your PhD in space flight dynamics. So bachelor's in, in aerospace, astronautical, and a PhD. And I'm sure a tremendous amount of papers in between the bachelor's and the PhD. So tell yeah. me, why did you go into space engineering? <laughs> in space engineering? Yeah. Um, Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I just love Star Wars so much. So yeah, had to... Had to do space engineering. Now, obviously, I know that there are heaps of other ways you can do space engineering as well, rather than the traditional degree, but I didn't know then. So <laughs> that's what I did. What part of Star Wars did you most most get attracted to? I think, yeah, no, it was definitely the alien landscapes and I guess all the interesting people that you see in Star Wars. And and I guess the, the galaxy was just a, the backdrop to that. So this is... I mean, planetary exploration is something I think we're all very interested in in the space community. And I think, yeah, it's the love of Star Wars is, is what really drew me in. Um, and I think a lot of other people, too. It definitely drew me towards a space uh, in, in a matter of speaking. But, you know, it, it's something that we at Space Forward are trying to sort of deduce is humans or what are the needs in order to make humans a multiplanetary species? So from that context and looking at your PhD thesis, it was about swarms of spacecrafts and trying to characterize asteroids um, during flybys. What drew you into this problem and what are some of the challenges that you had to overcome? Oh, yeah. Wow. Um, that's a that's an interesting story. So, um, yeah, as you might expect. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I really really didn't think that asteroid mining would be a going concern. So in my undergrad degree, I actually researched it. And I thought, there's no way that someone can get the business model to stack up. Turns out I was wrong. A few years later, all these asteroid mining companies came out of nowhere. So planetary resources and 
deep space industries, really exciting. And so I thought, you know, I got to help these guys. I got to get back in the space industry. I was just being a regular engineer at the time. So I came back and, and thought a PhD would be the best way to do this. And really because I, I just saw um, space resources as fundamental for humans to make that next step. So it was the way to go and asteroids were the way to go there. So I, I uh, started researching so I could help these asteroid miners mine asteroids better. The company actually started during the PhD and that was because I was like, okay, um, asteroid miners, here's a great way to do asteroid investigation. And they weren't really interested in that. They were more interested in, in standard models of getting to asteroids and really, really expensive multi $100 million missions. And, and my, my idea was to have them around a million dollars a pop instead. So yeah, that's, that's why the, the company was started originally. Well, that's very interesting because a lot of the companies that you mentioned are are not around in a matter of speaking anymore. <laughs> well, there's a reason for that, I think. So what I I found, I, we actually did some business development after we, after we started the company, which is now I realize is the wrong way to do that. But, <laughs> but what we found really quickly is that they weren't interested per se in cutting their costs because they didn't expect that they themselves could actually do the asteroid mining. So they'd done enough work to see that they didn't quite have the ability to get there with current funding constraints. What they had done, which was brilliant, is inspired a lot of people like myself, and there's a lot of others as well, to get started in alternate businesses that could help get there in the future. But yeah, it was really disappointing. I went to Silicon Valley, had a chat and found out quickly that what I was doing wasn't going to help them much. And, and yeah, that probably their time was near and, and sure enough, it was. So here's a question. Where did the pivot come from? Is that, you know, how did you move from asteroid mining support to, um, to where you are right now? Yeah. So, um, yeah, like where, where we are now is, is really doing a lot of space situational awareness. And it's using a very, very similar, I would say almost the same um, methodology and platform that we initially envisioned for, for high Earth orbit or here robotics. And really it was lucky that we were around just presenting. We thought the company was going to die, but we were just talking about what we did in, in front of some, uh, what were, we didn't realize at the time, but were uh, future customers. So we were talking in front of an audience and, and afterwards, some of them came up to me and said, what you're doing for asteroids, you should instead try and do for, for spacecraft because we've got all these problems, all these spacecraft doing weird things and we don't even know um, what's going on. And I was like, how can you not know? Um, <laughs> but we looked into it and, and sure enough, there are all these lost spacecraft. There are all these explosions that happen on spacecraft and no one's really sure why and spacecraft doing untoward things to other spacecraft. So really the the closer we looked, the more obvious it was that this was actually a, a large potential market that we needed to address. And, and I guess since, since that time, what's happened is that the number of, of forward predictive spacecraft is going up dramatically. Um, so it's oscillating quite heavily, but it's, it's around the 100,000 mark over the next decade. And uh, yeah, just in the last two months, we're already starting to see this epic increase. So last month, it was a 5% increase in active satellites. Month before that, it was 10% increase. 
And I think we can expect these kinds of increases over the, the coming months to close out the year as well. So. Absolutely. I mean, it's that it's a law of accumulation that's happening and right at the moment, you know, so, so you know, you just got to double down or you either double down or you just and close your doors at that moment. It seems that way. Yeah. You're not launching, you know, a thousand satellites right now. You're, you're not really going concerned. So it's kind of crazy. <laughs> exactly. As we were in the planning for, for this, we were trying to figure out, you know, what's the, what's the most near example. Something that came up in our conversations was Avi Loeb from Harvard, uh, astronomy department. He wants to send CubeSats, chipsats, to analyze Yumwama like objects in the solar system. Would this be a possible technology that you that, that you could develop or you could extrapolate from where you're at right now? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking that. Um, I think what he's doing is pretty incredible. And, and everyone looking at Oumuamua, I think it's a really, really interesting object to, to, to investigate. And, and really the, the topic of my, my PhD and what we're doing now with satellites is to have a camera at the right spot at the right time so you can go investigate really closely these objects of interest and do it at pretty low cost. So Oumuamua might be a little bit further away still because it's, it's, it passed pretty far away from Earth. But there are a lot of similarly transient objects passing really close to Earth. So last year, there were 106 asteroids that passed, that we know of, there's, there's more that we don't know of, that passed closer to Earth than the Moon. Um, so they passed within the Moon's radius. To, to Earth, and, and that's a perfect spot to station spacecraft if you want to investigate a lot of asteroids up close. So really, this is what the, the technology was originally built for. We're using it for other satellites now, but it, it could be a really interesting application going forward. And the way I see it is, is investigating asteroids is unlocking the knowledge of, of what resources are where in the solar system mm -hmm. um, and then using those resources in situ for, for astronauts and taikonauts and whoever else is, is exploring the solar system as time goes on. So do you think that the Oumuamua like objects, is this a generalization for, for many type of, you know, extraterrestrial objects and, you know, what other in, in complement of the tech that we have right now would be required to get us to the point that we can do these, these on a, you know, readily weekly type of frequency. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess the first question is a representative, uh, almost certainly. Yeah. Uh, and then it's just a matter of time before we see another object like this. Um, so I think it's, yeah, we, we didn't miss our chance by missing that particular object. There'll probably be another one like it coming soon. Um, and we should be ready for that. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a really good question. And, and really the biggest gap that we've seen that we've started to fill is that it's not a technological constraint as much as it is an operational constraint. So I think what we don't realize as astrodynamicists or, or um, mechanical engineers working in the space industry or um, electrical engine, so on and so forth. What we don't realize is how constrained we are by thinking the same way as we did in the Apollo era. So I think something that's really sad from that time is that it was so influential that it's kind of like, we were like, okay, they were so smart. We're going to do things the same way. Um, and, and in my field, in the astrodynamics field, it feels like 
really we haven't gone much further than um, uh, acknowledging flybys and the potential that flybys have to slingshot you around the solar system. There's so much more that we can do um, other than that. And, and really, I think um, that's where I tried to go with my thesis. I could only go so far, I'm only one person. And, and I think there's some other exciting work out there as well. But these are the kinds of operational changes that we need to start thinking about using, and we can start using the current technology today to do that. So on one more, um, uh, really, if, if there's a way to get um, a rocket with a significant Delta V positioned in the right place um, and have it kind of positioned in such a way that it could get to Oumuamua in, in a few months. That's absolutely possible, not with a human aboard. Um, but Starship, for example, is, is the kind of spacecraft where we can start positioning those in, in spots where we can use gravitational effects and, and the Delta V available to get to these objects really quickly. Um, and, and yeah, we should use cameras, we should ro use robots for these kinds of objects. Um, but as time goes on, there'll be uh, objects where humans can start to visit as well. So um, I'm really excited about these kinds of missions. And, and there's a lot out there that haven't been really even thought about or, or investigated at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think you opened a little bit of a can of worms for me because this is one of my one of my personal favorite topics. All right. um, <laughs> so so flybys you know the the yep. most the basic principles that that we know has worked and from if we can learn anything from history don't fix what's not broken so what what is <laughs> what is broken there or or do you think anything is broken do you think there's a next step that needs to be sort of have that have that you know lens focused on yeah. No, no. I, um, and I, I think I should clarify, I think flybys as they are, are, are fantastic. What a real problem that I saw when, when uh, doing my research was that a lot of people are investigating more and more slingshot maneuvers when they look at trajectory analysis. And that gets really boring really fast. And it also gets really slow really fast in that the more um, slingshots that you do, the longer it takes to get anywhere in the solar system. And that was born out of a, a want to conserve fuel. And that want to conserve fuel was at a very specific time in our history. And I uh, absolutely right now, that's not there anymore. We, we have a real change in the economics of launch. Um, and we have a real change that's already occurred um, a while back in, in terms of uh, electric propulsion and, and the propulsive types that we have available to us. So um, I would actually, I think, I think something that's interesting in terms of technological development, something that I've noticed is that people actually make very high thrust spacecraft or very low thrust, very highly efficient spacecraft. I'm like, what about in the middle? Sometimes in the middle is good too. Um, <laughs> so I think, I think no, well, I, I think it's pretty obvious. No astrodynamicist is actually building rocket or electric propulsion engines. And, and that's obvious to me in the way that these are developed. Um, because no one wants to go to that middle ground. Middle ground, um, yeah. Want to go to either extreme. <laughs> so, 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 talking about in relevance to what you did in your PhD, and when you, as you mentioned previously, the the Heo idea or Heo robotics idea was you know assimilated into something and pivoted into into one more yep. thing. During that time, you know, the world's first on orbit satellite inspection service was was coming into into perspective as well. Yep. Lockheed positioning itself in the middle of everything as always yep. and uh, 
<laughs> when did you seriously start considering the potential for the commercialization component of this? And what was yeah. the shift from academia to, to running a startup? Oh, yeah, totally. Well, it was really, um, I'll answer the last bit first, which is that shifting from academia to startups is really hard. Fortunately, more and more universities are acknowledging that and, and helping very technical people like myself become more economically and, and entrepreneurially minded, which very, very grateful for here. So yeah, it was, it was really tough. Yeah. In terms of the, the way that we pivoted, like having those customers come up to us was really important, but even after that time, it actually took two years to get our first major contract from that team. Um, we had some smaller contracts in the meantime, but now I'm really excited to say we've made, um, over half a million dollars Australian in, in sales, which approximately equates, you know, US dollars. Um, and, and we're about to finalize a capital raise as well, which we're really excited about. So these, yeah, if, if you look economically, you can start to solve more and more scientific problems. And, and we're really running that as far as we can, because a lot of the scientific problems that we're, we're trying to solve are actually quite small. There's, you know, there's still bigger picture stuff happening, but there's a lot of smaller stuff that academics are trying to solve. And that should correctly be solved in industry, I think, because a lot of them are, are quite small things and, and we can quickly solve those and, and move on to the next if there's an economic incentive there. So creating that economic incentive, that's the next trick. And as long as you're going out there, talking to customers, being stupid, being wrong sometimes, but, but sometimes hitting gold as well and, and talking to the right customer, that that's really powerful and, and something that we should do more of in academia. Well, that's excellent. The excellent point that you brought up because accelerators and incubators are, are, are becoming more and more a critical component of the building the ecosystems wherever you are and wherever those ecosystems exist. So what kind of support and what kind of, what kind of ecosystems are, are where you are that have helped you, helped you grow into, into where you guys are at the moment? Yeah, I think, I think probably our experience is, is replicated in a lot of places around the world, but, um, in Sydney, most of the universities here have an accelerator that, that helps. I guess ideas get into into um, or become companies. One thing that we've noticed at at UNSW, where um, we're actually based here now and based out of an office here, which is fantastic. They're giving us support and giving us free office space. But we're some of the only researchers that have become entrepreneurs, which is really sad. And they would love to see more, and we'd love to see more um, as well. I guess probably the, the, the thing that we discovered that's most useful is kind of the, the lean canvas and bi business canvas techniques where a business plan is very daunting to an academic and rightly so it's, it's actually daunting to everyone and having these kind of easier ways to think about business are really powerful and, and can be applied to the academic mindset as well. So actually something that's interesting right now is that my co-founder and I are teaching research lean canvas. So we, we kind of adapted the, the business lean canvas into a research lean canvas. And that's actually powerful in helping academics write articles, which is not something that we foresaw when we started. So we just saw that the, the methodology was just so powerful that we adapted it back into academia. So I think, I think there's a lot of powerful kind of transitions that can happen there. And it's all about talking about it in the right way saying, Hey, you don't even need to start a business. You just need to think about how this could 
be accomplished in a business context so that you can better help business people recognize how important your research is. So I think that's really powerful. And I think that's something that hopefully uh, more and more people will start waking up to and, and start collaborating more with startups and larger businesses as well. It's good that, you, that you're doing this because there's a huge gap uh, right, that and bridging that gap is is through and this methodology. And I'm now curious. You know, we can talk about that later about bridging yeah. that methodology back and forth as to how that's that's relevant. But here's the thing: the business at the end of the day is a, is a foundational ground, and business plans have typically analogously looked been looked at as as a foundational plan for a company's success. So. How was it that you realized that there's a potential for commercialization here? And this was this is probably the aha moment for you guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was it was really the um, uh, the sizing of the problem that helped us. So after um, the original customers came to us, we were, I guess, just investigating the problem further because we were like, well, I don't think we can add much value to um, people building spacecraft. So there were a few trends that were really important. First, the growth in satellites that are going up. Second is the um, increased budgets for space situational awareness with governments around the world. So countries like US, Canada, Australia, Britain, Germany, pretty much, pretty much anyone you can name, they're increasing their budgets significantly and all of them see this as a problem. And one of the drivers there is that actually every country is responsible for the satellites that it sends up. So it's really important that they um, look after the satellites that they launch. And probably, probably the last trend that wasn't obvious to us, but governments told us is that historically this has been done by getting um, individual operators to pass them data. And that's not workable at scale. Governments can't hire enough people to control that amount of data. So it's actually better for them to go to someone like us who can aggregate vast amounts of data, actually see what's going on satellites. So we, we collect multiple pixel images, um, sometimes thousands of pixels, which is un unthinkable when you're looking up at satellites from the ground, um, but we're a lot closer. Um, and once you get images like that, you can start to recognize is there anything going on the satellite that shouldn't be? Is, is there a, um, a break somewhere? Is the solar panel functioning correctly? Is the antenna even pointing the right way? Things like this. And I think exciting new capability like ours and, and others as well is, is really helping them say, okay, we can now deal with this problem, but it's, it can't be dealt with in the old way. It's got to be this new way of looking at things and managing the satellites that we're sending up. That's critical, right? Because I mean, the way that I imagine companies are, are are thinking about it, that their assets are critical to their business plans. Mm. And that's why yeah. companies like yourselves are, are, are bringing it to into perception that, you know, mm. we can do this for you and we can we can present yeah. it. But <laughs> here's a question. How mm. does this support yeah. the expanding of the value chain uh, beyond yeah. just inspection? Is there are there things that you've thought about yeah. similar to erecting, deorbiting, yeah, yeah. Um, retrofitting? Yeah, I think um, well, probably the I mean the easiest use case is helping appraise satellites that might be not that useful for their current owners and might be more useful for a second owner. So we were we were kind of amazed that this is going on, but satellite more and more satellites are being sold in space to other owners. And that's really exciting to us because that means you can repurpose satellites, 
maybe maybe there was a, a company that put up a great satellite. The business didn't quite work out, but now they've got a great asset on orbit that's working just fine. Um, and another company can acquire that, and that's that's been happening quite a bit now, which um, uh, is fantastic. And we think there's more and more of these applications. I should even note that even ourselves. So at the moment, we use um, 19 different satellites that are in orbit already, um, all with cameras, obviously, so we can use them. So when they have cameras, they're usually Earth observation satellites, which are only used when they're over land. So in on the night and on the day side of the Earth. So in nighttime over the ocean, they're not used at all. So even the best operators can only use these 15 percent of the time. Um, so we're, we're trying to get the usage up to around 60%. Um, the way we do that is by imaging other satellites only when we're over the water. So it means that these people can get even more value out of their assets. Um, and then they can invest more in, in sending more up and um, uh, starting to experiment more um, as well. So we're, we're kind of part of this value chain and we're hoping we can enable more of this value chain as well. And, and that will really help get to the next step um, probably, sorry, the last thing I should mention is that we haven't given up on asteroids. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. so everything we do has that end goal in mind, yeah. um, which we think is beneficial because it helps us create, I guess, solutions for our customers that no one even thought was possible. And the only reason we think it's possible is become, because we come from this different background. So um, as time goes on, where we're first we're using other people's satellites, then we'll start to have our own cameras on other people's satellites. Our first one's going up next year. Um, but in three to four years, we're hoping to have our own spacecraft and they'll be maneuverable spacecraft. Um, and they, these will have a dual purpose. So uh, they'll be looking at assets in the geo belt. So really important belt, um, heaps of satellites there that are very valuable, heaps of stuff going on that we can't see from Earth because it's so far away. Um, and they'll, they'll necess necessarily have to be maneuverable. The cool thing is there are enough asteroids coming close enough to Geo that when they come close, you can actually zip out with enough time to go and do an asteroid flyby. So this is what I'm talking about, unlocking that next um, kind of resource map of the, the solar system. And we're, we're really excited about this. At the moment, you know, uh, you mentioned the, the sort of step-by-step uh, -step how you're going to proceed forward with HEO. So how are you hoping that hosting payloads or the, the capability of hosting payloads will help you support your business? Is that because I'm, I'm guessing you have a product, product can be placed and there, there are some things happening there that will get you up to orbit. So where do you see that this helping you flourish? Well, yeah, as I said, um, uh, we've got some great customers already, but I guess what we're doing is assessing where customers need more capability. And we're trying to use assets on orbit as much as we can, but we actually run out of cameras at about 700 kilometers altitude. All our cameras look down, so we look at things underneath. And then necessarily we need to put cameras on spacecraft that are going higher so they can look at higher objects as well. And the problem with GEO is that you need to start maneuvering to, to station keep. So you actually need your own satellite there. So all of this kind of really just about, first off, we are like, okay, how do we actually service these customers that are asking us for solutions to their problems? And inspection is really an enabling product for um, maintenance, as we were talking about Northrop Grumman earlier. And, and really you should do a flyby inspection first 
just have a look at what's going on, make sure it's even safe for a maintenance craft to come. And so we're, we're seeing some success there. And then space situational awareness is, is really the other major area in which we're selling to right now. So defense forces around the world are really concerned about what's happening to their satellites. Sometimes they don't have eyes on them and, and we're helping there. And then space traffic management is the other one. So really understanding, making sure that everyone's launching with the capability that they said they were is really important for managing assets in space and ensuring that if you're the government in charge of these, that you have a real ability to understand what's going up and, and what might go wrong as well. So going back to the the origins of this idea and where it might have flourished, there mm. were talks or there were there were research there was research about swarms. So are you ever going to embed in the future yeah. in some sort of a future that uh, that this could be that next step or next logical yeah. step? Yeah, so we're um, not, not with the cameras we're using right now. That's it's hard to re retrofit them with a swarm kind of enablement. But uh, this really starts to make sense when you start having um, thrusters on board your spacecraft. And actually, what we're seeing right now, um, we're seeing a, a type of swarm technology aboard the Starlink satellites. So I don't know if this is widely understood and, and talked about, but their satellites are maneuvering like crazy. I'm pretty confident their operators on the ground don't quite understand what's happening to their satellites in space. Um, and they don't need to either because they're just following a simple command rule structure that helps them first phase into the correct orbit and then to correctly position their satellites so they have as much ground coverage as possible. So that's, that's a one type of swarm. And as we go out to the geo belt, we expect to have more of that same swarm technology aboard those. But it's interesting how I don't think people, a lot of researchers are like, yeah, yeah, we'll be the first swarm up in space. And it's like, it's already happening, guys. <laughs> actually, actually, I think Iridium was the first people to use swarm yeah. because they, they've got a um, communications problem that they, they solve with the swarm technology. But now... It's really interesting to see physical movement being um, swarm manipulated now with, with Starlink as well. So, And that's very interesting yeah. because the physics of swarm is it's something that uh, that's very, very jaunting in my opinion. It's, it could get really, really yeah. interesting. <laughs> so did you ever have, have yeah. that idea in your head that, you know, this could work, but this requires a lot of other technology in order for it to be very supportive? From a from a oh, physics the technology, yeah, from yeah. the physics standpoint, yeah. yeah, no, it's really. I think the biggest issue with swarm technology in space are the vast distances that are involved. Um, so Starlink make up for this by having heaps and heaps and heaps of nodes, but if you you don't have many nodes, like many swarm applications on Earth, it becomes really tough to do. So there are other kind of there are sparse swarm kind of solutions that you can still have where. The swarming is is kind of aboard each spacecraft, and then uh, you can have ground links as well that come into it. But yeah, it's it's. I guess that's probably the biggest constraint I see is is just sheer distances. So it's like, how do you even do things at the the same time when you've got seconds and seconds and seconds in between links in the swarm? So yeah, yeah, that's the big one I see anyway. I guess communication. Is also yeah. An issue. Do you think that uh, you know technologies like 
you know, optical laser links, reducing that distance, as you mentioned, you know, adding more nodes or having a different configuration as Mm. we're seeing that the architecture of of Starlink, it's sort of very much over divided and between the links. Do you think that this is this is something that can help the future become more efficient Mm. and utilizing these type of technologies? Yeah, I mean, it's got to, it's got to, you can't, you need a real-time solution. And I think Swarm's a really good way to enable that. As you said, optical could be a good way to connect nodes. Really, the biggest issue with optical is how do you point the thing? At the moment, we use, um, are really concerned about pointing it accurately. And in a Swarm solution, you even want to just let it kind of, I don't know, point in heaps of different areas and, and hit the one. And then when it hits maybe do something else. Um, yeah, it's really, it's really hard, difficult to think about what it might be in a swarm kind of scenario because you, you want it to be kind of for, a, in one of a better sway, a phrase, you want it to be as dumb as possible. Um, <laughs> at, the, at the moment, I think, I think, um, yeah, they're, they're quite hands-on in terms of the way they point. So yeah, I'm, I'm sure researchers in future will come up with those solutions. But yeah, optical could be one good way to do it. Yeah, I mean, historically, radio has been a good one because it kind of, you just beam out and it kind of hits everything. Yeah. Uh, but as time goes on, I'm sure we'll come up with different solutions for those kinds of problems. A point that I'm curious about is you know, nanosatellite or nanosat-based companies like Swarm and mm. Spire, they have a very, yeah. very high... Swarm use Swarm? I guess Swarm does use Swarm. Yeah. Probably not... Yeah, probably more the, the communications electrical network type they they both have a very very high iteration rate and they're constantly mm-hmm. running multiple satellite hardware design experiments mm-hmm. with a new version of satellites that is coming up into orbit and starlink is doing that very well too i mean yeah. with version 1.0 2.0 yeah. and things like that and updating the software over the air almost daily what what is your experiment and experimentation framework look like and what are the some yep. have you put any considerations into yep. how you and Hio are are going yep. to live prototype oh, oh. No, that's a really good question um so we are experimenting all the time so really really the i guess the benefit that we have is that a lot of our technology and and the software that we run gets run here on earth and then we send commands up but we iterate in the way that it runs so that it sends up better commands daily so we iterate on where we expect satellites that we're imaging to be where what else in in the the type of imaging capability that's on the satellite why what might be best for imaging so on and so forth so there's heaps of stuff going on we we have two weekly sprints and really we're looking to iterate every two weeks at least, but usually there's mini iterations within there as well. And they could be updated every hour to two hours. Really it depends how fast our software takes to run. So we're running it on, you know, some cloud infrastructure and uh, we don't want to pay much. So sometimes we, we take the slower number crunches and, and it takes a little bit longer. So sometimes it can be every couple of hours. Sometimes it can be every couple of minutes, just depends on on how fast we need to get to that next step. That's sort of ideal at the stage where, where you're at at the moment, which is perfect. Yeah. In the future, do you expect uh, to stay a fully integrated company or are you going to license the technology and the IP? Yeah, that's actually a great question because <laughs> we're, we're starting to get these questions from uh, other companies. Where, yeah, that 
I can't really talk much about what those deals look like. But um, yeah, I think I think it's quite possible that we might start to um, look at both models more seriously. I think for everyone's best interest, it probably makes more sense for it to be in our company. But as time goes on, it might make sen more sense to license that out. So we'll see what happens in the future. One thing that's hopefully, I mean, might not be obvious to your, your listeners, but um, what we're doing is we're the first commercial company in the world to do this. And definitely the first to use so many different Earth observation satellites to do this. So everything we're doing is new and we've got to necessarily experiment like crazy. And each new supplier that we bring on board, we've got to do start the process all over again. So there's some learnings that we can use from previous suppliers, but there's always new challenges and um, really interesting process. So uh, yeah, everything we're doing is new and, and that's both exciting and, and hard at the same time. Well, the iterative design and, and, and application approach has always been key backbone for the space industry, in my opinion, because, you know, it started off with with the Saturn and, and before before the Saturn, it was something else. And before that, it was something else. So I think it's going to continue. Mm -hmm. And I'm very glad to see. But here's my question to you. Yep. The challenges of the business case and and the challenges related to companies that are somewhat competitors and i know there there aren't many in this space at the moment mm. are there a lot of collaborations going on in this space are there a lot of sort of that no we have this data you have to come to us uh, happening yeah. no yeah no that's really good yeah interesting insight i think yeah at the moment it's very collaborative everyone tends to try and work together especially the people doing maintenance and inspection because really, um, having a good maintenance vehicle, it's tough to have it a good inspection vehicle at the same time. There's some inspections they can do well, but probably the the first inspections you wanna you wanna do separately. So yeah, we're we're part of the the consortium uh, Confers, and and there's a lot of these maintenance companies there as well, and other inspection companies. Um, so we're seeing a lot of great collaborative efforts like that going forward. And at the moment, name of the game is collaboration. But we're starting to see some acquisitions as well as time goes on, and I would expect that to continue to happen. Uh, so this is this is excellent because uh, this is sort of relevant to the amount of progress that you make or the amount of involvement that you do in your technology. And there are something that I'm going to ask you, and you don't have to answer this. Are you <laughs> going to refuel your own spacecraft when it comes down to it, or are you going to or inspect them yourselves? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of refueling, we'll probably get another. There's other great companies that are doing that. Uh, we'd love to use their technology instead. But yeah, we we think uh, this is one area where you've got to use the technology yourself. And I guess the other key learning about what we're doing is that we see so many satellite failures in our business. And that's, yeah, that's something that we we have to accept for ourselves as well. So everything we see on orbit we say, okay, we're going to have to see that at some point when we start getting our own hardware up. And and sure enough, sometimes our supply satellites do experience difficulties. So we do see that on orbit um, with what we're using already, even though we, we don't actually own anything up there yet. In terms of how vast HEO Robotics could spread itself, are you considering that it'll only be in, um, or what does your operational matrix look like? You know, uh, your coverage matrix. Is it only high Earth, or how many spacecraft do you think that you know? Yeah, have you, have you done those? Yeah, 
Have you done those no, that's initial? An interesting question. I mean, the sad thing is we named our company when we were an asteroid mining company. Back then, we only anticipated operating in high Earth orbit. But right now, we only operate in low Earth orbit. And we, we, we want to operate all the way up to lunar orbit as well. So we, we see that there's uh, business opportunities all the way up to lunar. And I think lunar in particular, it's going to be really critical to have eyes in the sky that are commercial, don't necessarily belong to one of the larger countries that's going to be up there. So we see what we do as being critical for that, that next leap, but also there's existing business cases all the way down to earth from there. So in regards to when it, when that business case starts to flourish, what are, are you seeing some sort of a categorization of, of physical defects that, you know, your, your customers are looking for? Are there very specific kinds yeah. or are they just yeah. general inspection? That's a, no, that's a really good question at the moment. No one wants general inspection inspection. That's something we found. Uh, we were a little bit disappointed because we we're like, yeah, inspection, everyone's going to want it. People don't want that. People want solutions to their problems. So if they're experiencing a specific kind of failure, they want to understand specifically about that failure. And so there's a real education process for us. Fortunately, we do have paying customers because we've been able to uh, help them understand about how we can help solve their problems. So there are things like um, antenna alignments, understanding damage on satellites, appraisal of satellites, as I said. And there's a bunch of other use cases that we're starting to help with. We think one day inspection of a spacecraft might be a great coverall. Um, and really we inspect every other complex engineering on Earth. So, so I think satellites might be the same way as time goes on. Not quite yet though. And, and so we do foresee that in the future. But at the moment we're, we're really looking at specific problems for specific customers um, and helping them with those. As time goes on though, I want to help people predictively maintain their satellites because that's something that's really taking the aircraft industry by storm right now. And it's something that we've absolutely got to apply to satellites because we've got all the problems of the airline industry plus X more. So we really got to get in there and, and help people look after what they're doing better. And, and that's, a, that's a fair point. So with that, do you have a, um, a prediction on when you might have your first craft in orbit? Or when are you hoping to? We'll have our first camera in orbit first half of next year. So, wow, that's pretty soon. Yeah, so in in about 12 months, we should have our first camera in orbit. Uh, in terms of our first spacecraft, probably three to four years um, away still. Um, but really, we're very happy to work with a whole bunch of suppliers and just working with so many other satellite operators. We see so many of the problems that satellite operators are experiencing right now. So we see it as a real benefit um, and a privilege that we get to work with these people and understand better the issues happening in orbit. How do you think that HEO will weave into the fabric of the, the greats that we're seeing into multi-planetary visions, space, yeah. quote-unquote, space barons like Musk and, <laughs> yeah. El Musk and Bezos? Yeah, well, we're hoping to be suppliers um, to both Musk and Bezos. So we've, we've uh, had early discussions with both teams and, and hopefully we'll continue there. Um, as time goes on, though, I see the real value that here can provide will be just operating cameras in space and, and doing that better than anyone else can. So inspection is the first business that we, we can really help with now. Um, but really, as time goes on, it's about how do you operate those cameras? How do you move them around in, in such a way that you can help get live coverage of a moon mission, for example? Something that I should mention is that every single 
Starliner uh, image that you see with the moon uh, or that's going to the moon. You see the moon in the background, Starliner in the foreground. Yeah, who's yeah. taking the photo? Yeah, yeah, we yeah. We want to be those guys. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> so we, we think there's a, a big role to play for, for taking images. Historically, it's been a big part of, of the Apollo missions and, and everything after that. And it's something that's been missing in, in the current imagination of humans. So I think... Sadly, it's a bit of a historical fact that we haven't had images of satellites operating, and I think that's detracted from our ability to imagine them and and for it to be a bigger part of our culture. That's right on, I, and I think this is a big component of building engagement with the public and get the getting the public to see the real benefits. And I think it goes hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like you know now that Artemis is 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 around the corner. NASA and other institutions will do that more and more. And yeah. that brings me to a point about, about the Australian space sector, where it's at and how do you see it flourishing? What's your take on it? Wow. Yeah. I've got so many feelings about the Australian space. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. That's a powder keg of a question. Um, so yeah, first off, it's really exciting that we have a space agency in Australia. So for the longest time, we didn't. Uh, when it was formed in 2018, I think it really transformed the way that Australia could interact with the rest of the world. First off, people were like, hey, you've got a space a space industry now. We're like, well, we had it for a while, but thank you for acknowledging that now. Um, really appreciate that. So that was already incredibly helpful. Um, and we we're really grateful for that happening. So even just existing, the space agency is already helping space industry here in Australia. So we we're excited about that. The other thing that it's done is that we had actually a very high proportion of space startups. They weren't doing much. They didn't have access to funds or a way to prove out their their technology. So that's started to change. So companies like ours and many others in Australia are getting access to those early funds and have started to do great things because of it. One issue that I potentially see on the horizon, I went to a conference last week. Everyone's building CubeSats, which is great. But the rest of the world's moved on already. So I feel like Australia maybe didn't get the memo during the pandemic that, hey, the number of satellites has doubled in the last year. Um, maybe, maybe we should think about kind of exponentiating our industry. And that's something that I think the US in particular has done well. And I think everyone else is kind of catching up a little bit. And in, yeah, in this country, and I think many others around the world, we've got to th- start that exponential mindset that was missing from space for so long due to f- funding issues doesn't exist anymore. We've all got to work harder and, and commercialize better and, and get to that next level. So that's the next issue that I see on the horizon. And, and I hope that we'll be able to really get in there and, and really uh, uh, make the most of it. Well, it'll be interesting because uh, that, that exponential increase will have to be to the power of, I would say probably 12 because they're almost 70 years yeah. ahead of you. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we've got to exponentiate like crazy. Yeah. Well, in, in Australia, one of our, weirdly, one of our priority areas for the space agency is leapfrog technology. I'm like, guys, we've got to work real hard to leapfrog this stuff that's happening out there. So yeah, that's I think, a, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a During pretty the pandemic, big... we're all locked in Fortress Australia and we've got to, Get out there, see the world, and and be and engage with other space industries, and be like, okay, what you're doing, I need to at least try to do it ten times better, so that when I come see you next year, I've got the same technology. That technology. You have, so. 
That makes yeah. perfect sense. So, you know, typically as a wrap up, we're, we're always very curious and I'm always very curious as to why the our guests are in space. So our question typically, and I, it's why space and why space now? That's, that's the question. Why space and why space now? Well, space is the place that humans should be. I think we should explore off the planet. I think the planet is very finite and I think it's incumbent on humans for the rest of life, actually, not just for humanity to get out there and explore the galaxy, if, if not beyond. And why now? I think now is, is where all the intersecting lines fill out the plot on, on, on the board. So now's the right time for the, to go forth. The Venn diagram matches ambition and, and it's time to get up there and, and make the most of what's happening right now. I think it's an exciting time. Well, Will, that, that's very well sort of put. And I'm sure our listeners are going to have a fantastic time listening to this because this is this is the type of technologies that we didn't see in the past, you know, 10 years ago, but we're seeing evolve now. So this is this is that pinnacle of the moment where you start to see the, the exponential rise of technologies, if you mean. And yeah. and, and uh, that's a wrap up for us. So thank you so much for joining. I really, really appreciate you taking the time. And, wow. you know, it's been a very fruitful conversation for me and I'm sure it'll be for our listeners. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for having me. Well, there you have it. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Space Forward. Stay tuned for more deep dives, explorations, and journeys we have in store for you. Follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or YouTube, and until then, hear you next time. Don't forget, send us your comments and questions, and we'll feature them in one of our next episodes. And we would love to engage with you, so do feel free to share your thoughts with us.